Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And we are joined again by the full crew, Megan Payne. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me back. And Luke, it's good to see you too. And Luke, yes, it's good to be back with you. Always good to see all of you. So Sorry, I I stole your intro of Luke. I'm just happy to see (laughs) y'all. It it has been a little while since we've seen each other. Um, So on this week's show, it's Education Week on Peach Pod. We are going to break down several of the proposals offered up by Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp and talk about the politics of it all. Then for our second topic this week, I sit down with Dr. Jason Johnson, politics editor at The Root and a journalism and politics professor at Morgan State University to talk about white nationalists demonstrating at a Stacey Abrams event in Augusta a few weeks ago and harassing her surrogates. And then finally this week, I talk with Kaylee Ann Teasley, a student at George Washington University who has a close eye on Georgia politics. We sat down to talk about the tone of this race between Abrams and Kemp and why she would like to see government represent the rich diversity of our state and our nation. But first, let's recap some news. So on Thursday, both Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Judge Brett Kavanaugh testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee about her accusation that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her and attempted to rape her at a house party when they were both in high school. Blasey Ford recounted her story in painfully vivid detail before the committee and took questions from Democratic members of the committee and an outside lawyer, Rachel Mitchell, who was hired by the all-male Republican side of the committee to ask questions for them. Um, So after Blasey Ford testified, Kavanaugh took his seat before the committee and argued his case that the accusations made by Blasey Ford were not true. And at sometimes crying and at other times defiantly angry, Kavanaugh lambasted the committee's Democrats for smearing his good name on the eve of his elevation to the nation's highest court. Um, So it was a really tense day on the Hill and here in Washington. Um, What were y'all's takeaways from the hearings today? It was really hard to watch. I think that was like my overall takeaway. You know, there's been a lot on the internet about believe her, believe women. And then you also add in the fact that this is a very triggering topic for many women. And then you add on actually watching her talk about things, as you said, in vivid detail. It just, it was a super uncomfortable day. I can't imagine being her. I can't imagine being Kavanaugh either, quite frankly. But I just how hard it is to to go through this is what really stuck with me i i would echo that and uh my my main takeaway from this is just how bizarre it all is and how it quite it's quite clear that we as a society have no idea how to handle these allegations appropriately and in a way that doesn't become a for lack of a better term shit show because this is obviously not the best way to do it. Like that 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 is what I saw from airing things out today and um you know I I wish we were not rushing this nomination and that we had time to investigate the allegations because most of the most of the questions from the the Republican senators were really just bizarre micro uh questions about 
when she submitted documents at what time. And I, I understand they're probably trying to get to the consistency of her story. Um, but I just, I just don't feel like this is, this is how you air allegations like this. And, and it just, I don't know. I, I, I'm just sad to see it become this. Yeah. I was really struck by, you know, you know, part of the lesson of, of this cultural movement is, is believing women and believing them about these stories that, that they tell because they so often feel uncomfortable doing so. But I think even just sort of beyond the baseline of that, she, Blasey Ford came off as very, very credible in this hearing. Um, And the way in which it stood out to me was that this is a town full of politicians, that committee room was full of politicians, and they so often you know, spin the meaning of words and and try to take advantage of of vagaries and gray areas. And Blasey Ford was like, very clearly just like, this is my story. This is what happened to me. These are the things I remember. These are the things that I don't remember. These, you know, these are the gaps that if we had a full investigation into this, for instance, by the FBI, um, that these are the things that I think based on additional information, I could be more helpful. And I was really struck by the difference in the way in which she told her story versus the way in which Kavanaugh came out pretty much guns blazing, attacking Democrats on the committee, uh, attacking them for smearing his good name for how much that this had all hurt him and his family. And you're really dodging questions from the committee and at one point, throwing questions back in the face of Democratic senators. For instance, at one point, he was asked if he drank too much, he drank to excess to where he did not remember things that he that he blacked out. He was asked this by Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota. And instead of answering the question, he turned it around and said, well, have you ever blacked out from drinking? And Amy Klobuchar is somebody she she mentioned this in the hearing, whose father was an alcoholic. Um, it's something that's deeply personal to her. Kavanaugh later apologized for this in the hearing, but it was clear that he like very much did not have his emotions in check and he did not look like somebody who who should be on the court. Yeah, if I uh, can I follow up on that? Yeah. Yeah, my reaction to to watching this cuz you know, being being at the uh, law school for most of the day, a, a lot of people were talking about this hearing and how Kavanaugh was handling himself and you know it's quite clear that there is no playbook for how you respond to these allegations whether they're true or not on his part but it's quite clear Kavanaugh did not do (laughs) like what you should do that this was a poor response either way because you're right that he spent so much of this hearing just like very clearly red hot mad and going back and forth between that and almost crying it's just like this is clearly not the right person for this job in that even if the allegations are not true, which I think they are true, but even if they aren't, he obviously doesn't have the demeanor and the temperament to handle being on the court that he would snap back and be incredibly disrespectful to a bunch of senators who are asking him legitimate questions that, I mean, these are, you know, it's, if it was any other hearing, any other, uh, you know, if it was John Roberts or uh, Kagan or any other Supreme Court justice and you asked them how often they got blackout drunk, it wouldn't really seem all that relevant. But when the heart of the allegations 
is Kavanaugh's drinking habits, it's a relevant question how often he got blackout drunk in high school. Well, and just to kind of bounce off the fact that you said he doesn't seem qualified for the job, ultimately, this entire process is supposed to be a job interview. And there's not – this isn't like a a court case where people are presumed uh, to be innocent until proven guilty or or any of that sort of thing. You know, Trump was talking about that today too. There is no presumption of of innocence. This isn't – this could go to court and he could completely get off. But this is – a job interview. This is about how he can handle himself under pressure. And he clearly just, if something's too personal for him, it just doesn't go well. And people have lost jobs over less. Like sexual assault allegations are a huge deal, whether they are proven or not, which to reiterate what Luke said, I believe her. But people don't get hired on teams because like they just don't seem like a good fit. Well, Kavanaugh doesn't seem like a good fit. Let's move on. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even more than just believing her, I I think she was very brave to come before that committee the way that she did today and to structure her testimony the way that she did. Well, because I I think I can get to one one thing that um, came through to me from Ford's testimony was that she did not intend to be sitting there and doing that, that she had approached uh, revealing the incident with Kavanaugh with the hopes of remaining uh, confidential and that, that she was not able to do that. Um, she still was brave enough to face it and should definitely uh, get credit for that. And especially under an incredibly hostile environment where it's, it's quite obvious that the Republicans were being as perfunctory as possible with having this hearing and making sure that a lot of the questions that they have for her could not actually get solid answers by how fast they're rushing this through. And it's just, it's just quite clear to me that it's, it's, you know, Lindsey Graham got really, really mad, like the angriest I've ever seen Lindsey Graham. And that calling pissed this, me off. Well, yeah, me too. But calling, uh, I think the quote is, is like, this is the most unethical sham since I've been in politics. And, you know, unfortunately he's right. But the problem is, is that it's the Republican side of it. That's the most unethical sham because yeah, it's his fault, thing, not Blasey right, Ford's like, fault. Yeah, it's, it's, he's, he's part of it because the thing is that really pisses me off about this entire situation is that if Brett Kavanaugh is telling the truth and that this is a false allegation and all these other allegations are false, I would be desperate for an FBI investigation. I would be desperate for, yes, independent third party who's really good at investigating and stuff like this, clear my name because I'm getting raked through the coals here and this is bullshit. That would be my reaction. I would be, yeah, let's slow this thing down and not push me through so that, you know, for the 30 or 40 years I'm on the court, everybody thinks I'm a rapist. So the Federalist Society has a whole list of conservative judges, including Amy Coney Barrett, that I think would uh, be happy to light Roe v. Wade on fire if she got the chance. Do you think that Kavanaugh may end up not being on the court? I don't want to say it. I am what I have Don't be pessimistic. This might be the time to be optimistic. I mean, maybe, maybe, but... Based on the things that I have seen and heard around this case and just around people's opinions and the state of the nation and how partisan and divided it is, I think that a lot of the senators would have a really hard time with their constituency no matter what way they voted. And with 
there's this kind of like sense of entitlement that seems to be going into it as well. And so it's like when you could vote to give the guy the job, that seems like the safer vote because it seems like a more kind-hearted vote. Whereas I really think the kind-hearted thing to do would be not to give him the job because you believe his alleged victim. But I don't know. I'm, I'm really, I'm really worried. <sighs> so my, my reaction to this is to remind me one thing that um, I, I saw back in, in 2014. Uh, and it's unfair comparison to compare Nathan Deal to what Brett Kavanaugh has been accused of. But uh, there's a lot of uh, stories around Nathan Deal doing some corrupt and shaggy practices as governor and things along those lines. And a sentiment that I got from a lot of my somewhat right-leaning but independent type friends was that like, yeah, Nathan Deal's an asshole, but he's our asshole. Um, and with Brett Kavanaugh, there's there's definitely a similar vibe that I'm getting uh, from the Republican senators that this is our asshole. Lindsey Graham gave off that vibe for sure. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, mm-hmm. And by most of the, it, it's it's quite clear they did not want to get to the heart of this situation, and that the Republicans were interested in discrediting Ford and making Kavanaugh look good and not asking him the tough questions that were required of a situation like this and not doing the due diligence that a situation like this requires. That being said, there there are currently enough senators who have either not expressed their opinion or uh, have expressed some doubt about uh, Kavanaugh in the past couple days. The, the traditional list that I see is Jeff Flake, Lisa Mikowski, Susan Collins, and sometimes Bob Corker's on that list, but uh, not not always. It's really going to come down to them because it seems like pretty much the rest of the Republican Party is falling in line behind Kavanaugh. But I I, I still think it's possible. I would not say it's a slam dunk due to the Senate procedures. It's going to take a couple days, and that like the earliest they could probably get completely done with the process is Tuesday. I think this story has a little bit more time to metastasize and the effect of both Ford's pretty credible performance and whether true or not Kavanaugh's not impressive performance and the rage that he clearly displayed and the disrespect for uh, the Democratic senators, especially the female senators, uh, I don't think that's going to play in his favor. And I think he's going to face a lot more criticism because one thing uh, that I've learned about uh, politics in the United States is that um, it's one thing for stuff to something to be reported in the news, but it's entirely other thing when you have a video clip that you can play on the news for the next couple of days and to go viral and see people, uh, you know, continue to see this and get angry about it. Um, I, I think this is just starting rather than ending in the way that Republicans think. That's a fair statement, and I like I like that view of it. That I can get, I can get some optimism from that. You know, like there is time to digest this. It's not like they're voting right now, and maybe they will review what was said and really see what we've stated that Kavanaugh just isn't impressive. My gut says he's not going to end up being on the court. It somebody is going to bail. I don't. They have to hold nearly. They have to hold all but one of their caucus together. Yeah, and I think at least a couple, maybe three or four, are going to take the leap together, and he's not going to end up on the court. Cheers to that. 
Real quick, let's move on to our second uh, check-in topic. So last week, the AJC published a story recounting a deposition that Brian Kemp gave in a lawsuit between him and a business partner who loaned money to a failed Kentucky agriculture business at Kemp's request. Kemp personally guaranteed the loan, signing paperwork saying that he was the company's secretary and assistant manager. But in the deposition, he took pains to say that he did not recall the business arrangement and tried to say that the original terms of the loan that he guaranteed were void because his business partner gave extra time to the failed company to repay the loan. Kemp has aggressively hit Abrams on her personal finances in this campaign, criticizing her for having a $50,000 debt with the IRS that she is on a payment plan for. Um, But do you think that these revelations about this deposition undermine those attacks against Abrams? I think it's just typical hypocrisy. Like, we all know politicians are hypocrites on both sides. Um, And I think that this just kind of goes toward that. I wasn't terribly impressed by hearing about this. Like, yes, I I, I guess I was a little bit miffed in the sense that I'm like, see, you've got financial shit, too. But um, this is just par for the course. Yeah, I think I mentioned this on one of our previous shows. This seems to be part of a recurring strategy by the Kemp campaign to continuously attack Abrams for things that he is also doing or doing something incredibly similar to. I think part of that is because some of the attacks that Abrams have made on Kemp are fairly effective and that he's trying the best he can to muggy the waters so that those attacks don't land as hard. And so uh, it, it makes sense that he would try to attack her on her financial issues since he does have these lingering financial issues of his own uh trying to uh make it hard to distinguish the two of them uh personally on these issues i think is just part of part of that strategy he's he's been doing all along um, and then let's move to our final check-in, and, and this will be kind of a preface for our education discussion. Um, we've kind of recorded this episode in bits and pieces this week, so we are going to lose Megan for the education discussion. But later in the week, after we recorded the first part of this conversation, Brian Kemp released a proposal where he is offering to give teachers a permanent $5,000 annual pay raise if he was to be elected governor. He estimated that this cost of $5,000 raises for every teacher in the state would cost about $600 million a year. Um, And it is an open question at this point how this proposal, along with nearly $100 million in school safety spending that he proposed last week that we'll talk about a little later in the show, how all of that fits in with his proposals for a state spending cap and for tax cuts that are supposed to be freed up by restraining state spending via that state spending cap. Before we dive into the meat of the education discussion, um, what do you guys think of this proposal from Kemp on these teacher pay raises? $5,000 for each teacher, like that's phenomenal. So if that can be made to happen, then heck yeah, like I would support that. But the biggest issue with all of this is what you've already outlined, that he's talking about caps and cuts and then talking about spending all of this money. Um, so I, it just, you know, you have to ask the question, with what money are you going to do this? Yeah, that's my uh, concern as well. I obviously uh, would love to see our public school teachers get more money. Uh, it's a 
hard job to be a teacher, and Georgia pays its teachers a lot less than uh, plenty of other states. So obviously it'd be a good move, but based off of Kemp's other proposals, I would be very skeptical. If Kemp is looking for a place to cut money from his proposals, based off his previous performance, I would not be surprised that this would be one of the first places to fall off the list. And with that, I think we will dive into uh, the heart of the education discussion. Uh, before, But before we do, um, we should say bye to Megan, who we're going to lose for the rest of the show. Uh, but Megan, thanks for jumping on and recapping the news with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you guys. So with that, let's move on to our first big topic of the week. Um, so it's Education Week here on Peach Pod. Uh, both Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp have released plans around education that cover topics like funding, how schools are funded, their differing positions on school choice, how they would support rural schools in Georgia, and what they would do about school safety and security, particularly in the wake of the Parkland shooting earlier this year down in Florida and other incidences of violence at schools that we've seen. Um, So we just wanted to dive deep into these plans that are being proposed by both sides on this issue and talk about what it would mean uh, for one of these people who is going to be the next governor of Georgia. So sort of the most important thing about education, sort of the core thing to know about it in this state is that it really matters how the state funds education. Uh, The state funds education through a formula known as the quality basic education formula. And for over 15 years, the legislature did not allocate the funding to our state schools that is required by that formula. Um, this has long been an issue that Democrats have raised in the Democrats have raised about Republican leadership on this issue, but it was something that previous Democratic governors have not fully funded. Also, both Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp are pledging to fully fund the QBE formula. Abrams also says that she wants to reform the formula, a goal of uh, Governor Nathan Deals that he ran on in his reelection, but that he did not actually do. But Kemp's claims, I think, on this are a little bit questionable by the fact that he also wants to put a cap on state spending, and he wants to use sort of some of the leftover money when you try to put a cap on state spending and slow it to cut taxes. What do you think of this question of of school funding and, and how the politics around this work? I think it's just one of those continuous issues in Georgia uh, that we've seen since the Republicans took over, you know, the government here, uh, because for a long time, Georgia was really seen as one of the forerunner states uh, on education. The Hope Scholarship is something that, you know, we had. It was our idea. And a lot of other states uh, created systems that were based off the Hope Scholarship. And so since you know, 2002, uh, when the Republicans, uh, you know, won and started having unified control of Georgia, it's been a different story in that Georgia's had a lot of trouble funding its uh, QBE formula. And every governor's race, at least partially, has ended up being about education, which isn't surprising since Democrats are usually seen as stronger on education and Republican governors work pretty hard to seem like they are solid on education as a way to, you know, attack their opponent's strengths rather than their weaknesses. I say all that to say is I, I'm not surprised that we're here talking about education. Had a peach pod existed in 2014, we would have basically been an education-only program. I'm not surprised that both candidates have pretty thorough well-laid-out plans for education. 
That being said, it does not surprise me uh, by your, you know, how you presented this topic and the fact that Brian Kemp's math doesn't add up because this is just consistent Brian Kemp isms uh you know that he is not the most competent person running for uh, governor of a state that requires someone who is very competent so on that front i'm i'm not surprised that we're we're sitting here with a lot of ability to break apart a plan that brian kemp presented to us another element of education policy is the issue of school choice. This is one where I think there's probably is the sharpest distinction between Abrams and Kemp. So we've talked previously about a program called Student Scholarship Organizations. This is a donation program where people can donate to a student scholarship organization, an organization that provides scholarships for students to leave a public school and go to a private school, take the scholarship to pay tuition at that school, And in return to donating to one of these organizations, people who make the donations can get a break on their taxes up to a cap, um, and then donations are no longer allowable under, or donations will no longer get tax benefits after that. This is a program that currently costs the state $100 million a year. Brian Kemp wants to double this program. Stacey Abrams wants to eliminate it. So this is, they are going in exactly opposite directions on this one. This is part of Kemp's view that he sort of views education as kind of a market good where competition would benefit education, would benefit its quality, would make it more innovative in the state. And Abrams has repeatedly said that she doesn't want to be the education governor. She wants to be the public education governor. Um, And so this is where they have really diverged on that issue Luke, this is an issue, particularly for conservatives, the issue of school choice and local control is something that I think brings many conservative voters to the polls to vote. Do you think there's any liability for Stacey Abrams in not being more open to school choice? I I think there is, but I think there's just as much liability her being for it on the other side. School choice is one of those issues that I think if you're a voter and that is your defining issue, you're probably already voting for Republicans. There are definitely some Democrats that support school choice, uh, but they are definitely not the majority. And I feel like out of all the issues that Georgia is facing, I don't think this is the one that um, requires the Democrat gubernatorial candidate to really compromise on what their goals are because Student scholarship organizations do work in direct contrast to building a stronger school system, a public school system, because they represent an escape valve, a state-funded escape valve for wealthy students primarily to get funding to go to private schools. So I I am not a big fan of student scholarship organizations, especially when we're not fully funding QBE. So I, I'm 100% fine with us getting rid of this program because really, I if you did a poll of everyone in Georgia, I would bet money that the only people who are aware of this are people who would probably be, put their kids in private school anyway. And it's just another way to redistribute wealth to the wealthy. And I am, you know, I am sure there are some people who are uh, lower income that benefit from the program, no doubt. But I, I still think at the end of the day, it is a way to benefit well-endowed private schools. And I don't think there's that much risk for Abrams on this one. Yeah, this is a program that, 
legislators have tried to sort of add a little bit more accountability and information on. Prior to the last legislative session, there was no requirement that income ranges of students who receive these scholarships be published in any sort of form. Yeah, I forgot about that, which is good proof of what my point was. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you were right. Um, they There is additional reporting on that that's going to be required now, unless Abrams gets rid of this program. Another aspect of this that we've discussed is that schools that take this money are not required to abide by any non-discrimination provisions. So if it's a Christian school, they can discriminate against LGBT staff and students. Uh, You could be kicked out of school for being LGBT. We've discussed before uh, stories from Georgia and from other states of students who have been in similar programs like these who have been bullied by other people in their schools, um, particularly over the sexual orientation issue and who have not had recourse from their school because these are not inclusive environments. Um, And these are environments that receive funding from your tax dollars. Another aspect of their education proposals, both of them have talked a little bit about what they want to do for rural schools in the state. Um, There's a couple of relevant issues here as as it relates to rural schools. One of them is that it is difficult to get teachers to come teach in rural Georgia schools. We talked a lot about healthcare issues in these in in some rural communities about hospitals closing, about lack of access to healthcare. In those communities, it is difficult to get people to want to move there, to want to stay there. And one of the other issues as it relates to that is teacher salaries. And so Abram says that she wants to prioritize competitive family supporting salaries as it relates to rural schools. Um, and do things like loan forgiveness programs to help encourage people to teach in underserved areas, particularly in rural areas. Kemp, in addition to the salary proposal we talked about at the beginning of the episode, he also wants schools to provide more resources to students in their communities. He wants to work with nonprofits to fund after school courses that teach soft skills and workforce preparation. This feels very in line with sort of a Casey Cagle Career Academies approach. And he wants schools to be open after school to uh, be a place where people can access the internet. Luke, we have talked a lot about rural development and issues in rural Georgia on this show this year. Our listeners may remember that House Speaker David Ralston is the leader of a rural economic development study committee that has, it's in its second year of meetings. And we kind of thought that this would be a real revitalization of rural issues in the state. What do you think about these commitments um, to supporting rural schools and rural education from these candidates? It's just like everything else with education in Georgia is uh, I'll believe it when I see it. A big plank of Nathan Deal's reelection campaign was reforming the QBE formula. And we really didn't see much on that. Uh, As you mentioned, um, House Speaker Ralston had a rural development committee Really, not a lot came of it, which is surprising since, uh, you know, many Republicans come from rural districts and you would have thought they would have liked to push through some measures to campaign on, but uh, they did not. So on that front, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, hopefully, uh, we have a Governor Abrams and a slightly more Democratic legislature and we can make some forward progress on these issues. But I think 
All, all in all, these are not bad ideas from both candidates. Yeah, I think I think even Kemp's are are pretty good here. I don't think they have a lot of detail. I think this is one place where he is not offering bad ideas. Yeah, and, and I mean, and I was I was encouraged because as I was uh you know reading through the proposals, I was just like, yeah, that's actually not that's not terrible. Uh, but it's again due to the lack of specificity. I, I sort of am, my default is I'll believe it when I see it. But I, it's one of those things where it's going to require a lot of effort from whoever the next governor is to really uh, rebuild the you know Georgia education system. Uh, and a lot of that is going to require the state to you know put up or shut up uh, as far as it comes to funding. Because there's a lot of things you can do on the edges to improve someone's teaching experience. But at the end of the day, if you're not offering something along the lines of loan forgiveness, which I think is a great idea or a really competitive salary, it's, it's not going to work because there's too many other States in our region that are paying teachers more and have opportunities in the types of places that people are eager to live uh, rather than uh, sort of just consider you know, it's just it's hard to get people to like move to a place like where i'm from uh you know st mary's or wood buying if they've never been there before and have no reason to put that on their list of places to live and teach so if we can offer perks like you know loan forgiveness or really competitive wages i think that will be the best thing we could do another issue where they they have pretty divergent views and where they both offered a lot of detail is on school safety and school security Kemp last week had a press conference where he issued a proposal. And in this proposal, which is one of the most detailed we've seen from him, he called for $68 million in funding, $30,000 to all of the state's nearly 2,300 schools to allow for the hiring of more school resource officers and security upgrades like cameras, single point of access systems, crisis management systems, and metal detectors. He also is calling for funding to hire counselors similar to this graduation coach model that's been a part of Georgia schools for a while. But the thing that stuck out to me about that proposal is that it it sort of relies on this concept of we need to harden our schools against external threats. And he said in the press conference that this has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. It has nothing to do with his opponent's views on gun control, on gun regulations. And so he's really approaching this with an idea of we're not going to do anything on guns. We're not going to do anything to mitigate external threats to our schools otherwise. And so we need things like metal detectors and cameras and to spend significant money on these things um, to keep our schools safe. Abrams has a very different view of this. Um, she has she basically backs a lot of what's called what's become known as common sense gun reforms, things like back- background checks and waiting periods and and making it a little bit more of a hurdle for people to buy guns to hopefully mitigate people impulsively buying guns to do things like plan school shootings. And when she talks about school climate, she talks about positive behavioral interventions and less use of force by resource officers in schools. And so this is sort of almost like a philosophical difference between these two, where Kemp wants more police, more of that in our schools. And Abram seems to want less because Kemp seems to be focused more on preventing external threats to schools. And Abram seems to be more concerned about the use of force, the over-criminalization of behavior by teenagers and, and kids younger than that in our schools. 
Luke, this to me is like a very baseline distinction between the two. What what do you think of um, of these two different ideas about school security and, and school safety? Really, with all these like cultural educational issues, I think we're going to need from whoever wins this governor's race, we're going to need someone who is willing to take a very comprehensive view of the issues and the problems here. From Kemp, I am seeing a very focused directed thought of there is someone with a gun trying to get into this building and how do I stop them rather than thinking about how do we prevent people from wanting to come into schools and shoot people to begin with and I feel like uh, Abrams's approach is a little bit better on that and if I was going to provide more funding for schools with the hope of preventing more school shootings I think it would be more effective to look at additional counseling programs and trying to take preventive measures and have resources in schools to check up on the kids because not every school sugar, but a lot of school sugars are current or previous students. And I feel like there are plenty of warning signs and rather than just suspending people and, or throwing them out of the schools, it would be much better if there was a, uh, you know, security net in place to try to potentially address some of the mental health issues that people people are facing. I think that is a much better use of the state dollar. Yeah, I think I think he would say that 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 is the intent of the school counselors. It, it's basically an attempt to give every school an additional counselor that would be focused squarely on these issues. Um, he's got, but she should get credit for that because that is important. Yeah, and yeah. And I'm he, happy to see that's part of it. And and he's got 23 million dollars that he's he's set aside for this. The issue that I where I think that this falls short is that he wants to connect students to existing services like mental health services. There's there's a role that Medicaid plays in schools, particularly for low income students. But what I don't see from him that I see from Abrams, and this is kind of the last point I'll get to from her plan, is an emphasis on providing more of these wraparound services. You don't really go to school to get health care, but every child goes to school. And so you can take advantage of the fact that, you know, that nearly every child is in school. And if they need dental services, if they need mental health services, if they need primary care services that particularly for families of modest means, this is sort of one place it can, it can be a one-stop shop for getting these kinds of things. And Brian Kemp's plan is, is to come up with a new counselor, one for every high school to help facilitate accessing those services, but it's not additional counselors for middle schools or elementary schools. And it's not additional funding for any of these services. And I think what we found in education research in recent years is that, you know, we've tried in education to increase the amount of testing to make sure that every student gets tested and that their performance gets closely monitored and compared and to rate teachers based on how their students progress. And we haven't spent enough time focusing on all of the other factors that go into what facilitates student learning and student achievement, whether that's your environment at home, whether it's you're getting enough to eat, whether you're dealing with other issues in your life. As a student, as a kid, we haven't really addressed those issues. And I think that Abrams, by committing to what's called a community schools model, which is meant to bring these services into schools and to find funding for them, I think that that's a much better effort than just hiring a new counselor to say, oh, these services are here. But it doesn't 
fund more services. Um, and so, so I think it's going to have, have limited effect. So that is sort of the broad swath of education plans from both Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. So I think for now, we can leave that conversation there and turn to my conversation with Jason Johnson. So we're now joined by Dr. Jason Johnson. He's the politics editor at The Root and a politics and journalism professor at Morgan State University. Dr. Johnson, thanks for joining the show. Glad to be here. Um, So you have a new article in The Root called Shoot Them on Sight, Stacey Abrams' Campaign Harassed by White Nationalists, Republican Brian Kemp, and Georgia Media Say Nothing. Um, Can you start out by just uh, telling us what happened at this Stacey Abrams event that your article is about? Well, sure. Uh, At the beginning of September, September 3rd to September 5th, uh, the Abrams campaign was doing an event uh, out near Augusta with women veterans and, you know, talking about women's veterans issues and the specific challenges that that women who serve this country face and how her administration was supposed to be better for them than Brian Kemp. And while she was there delivering a speech, an organization called the Nationalist Liberty Union, the NLU, a white nationalist group came to the event and they began to sort of verbally harass some of the people who were in attendance. Uh, one of the gentlemen came into Abrams' actual talk to the constituents and challenged her about the Stone Mountain, uh, you know, sort of displays and Confederate monuments in the state and were generally fairly obnoxious and abrasive. Now, what's significant about this is two things. Number one, hecklers and non-supporters showing up at campaign events is not new, right? That's It's not new to Georgia. It's not new for anywhere in the country. But this is a terrorist organization. These are gentlemen who have criminal records, who have uh, online presence where they talk about shooting African-American women and children in the back, where they talk about violent revolution to fight back against the menace of Hispanics and Muslims in America. And so when you have that kind of group showing up to criticize and talk about open war and revolution about a candidate, that's a pretty serious issue. And what struck me is that uh, once I became aware of this through various sources, bringing it to my attention and bringing the videos to my attention, none of the other state press covered it. Uh, None of the other state press in Georgia really dug into the story at all. You had local media there from Augusta. You know, they covered that they were protesters, but they didn't go into any kind of detail. And I thought that was a real concern. And that was sort of the catalyst for doing the story and giving it some real depth and heft. So let's talk about some of the media coverage related to this. Um, you mentioned that there there wasn't coverage of this event, but you're in your article, you're also critical of the media coverage about Stacey Abrams writ large. Um, can you talk about your general view of how the media has chronicled this race? Well, I, I think you've got three main sort of population centers media areas. You've got your Savannah, you've got your sort of Macon, you've got your you know, Atlanta metro area. And I, in my view, and I say this, I'm not an outsider. Uh, I actually was living in Marietta and Smyrna up until just under two years ago. And I'm back in Atlanta about every six weeks. So this is not some outside media person parachuting in. But it was always fascinating to me that the amount of coverage that Stacey Abrams received and that the topics that are Focus on what she's covered seem much more negative and and much more derisive than what you saw for other candidates, even when she was running against Evans during the campaign. This goes back fairly far during the Democratic primary with Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans. 
you know, you had you had media members from The Intercept, uh, which is a very sort of liberal magazine, who are writing on behalf of, of Stacey Evans and saying that Abrams was was a neoliberal and that she was out to destroy the state. You had Greg Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who was writing all sorts of negative things. And then they wrote about me claiming that I was an Evan, that I was a Stacey Abrams surrogate. And I remember being sort of fascinated by this because I said, I'm not a surrogate. I don't work for these people. I work for a news site that focuses on African-American politics and culture. And I pointed out that the writers at The Intercept, who were writing on behalf of Evans, that they all went to school with her, uh, that, they, that they were a Georgia alum like Evans, that they worked at the same paper that Evans did, and the same with Greg Bluestein. And I said, if we're going to get into these conversations about biased coverage, maybe you should outline the personal relationships and the professional relationships that you have with this candidate that you're writing about. But I've seen that throughout this campaign season, where the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, will find anything they can negative to say about Stacey, uh, Stacey Abrams, didn't say about Evans. Now that we've moved into the general election, while I wouldn't necessarily say that's the case with every Savannah paper and every Augusta paper, the amount of attention paid to, oh, I don't know, Stacey Abrams' finances, as opposed to the inherent conflict of interest that comes from having a secretary of state who manages elections also run for governor at the same time, you know, I think there should be sort of equal attention paid to both. And there hasn't been in most of Georgia media. So specific to the coverage around the white nationalists at the Abrams event, what do you think of the argument that maybe giving too much or giving coverage to these people is maybe giving them too much attention beyond what they deserve. Do you do you think that they're elevated to a point in our politics where including them in the coverage is important? No, no, because you would be covering an event. So it's one thing to say, I'm going to sit down and do a 25-minute uh, podcast interview with a white nationalist so we can have a discussion about his or her belief systems, right? Those are the kinds of things where I've often I'm, I'm an MSNBC contributor, you know, and I, I've, I've talked about that on the air. It's like, hey, you know, some of these people, we don't necessarily need to give them a platform to spread their belief system. You want to find out about it, it's very, it's very apparent. That's fundamentally different than this event happened and this is what these people represent. And so to simply cover an event where it's like, hey, people who are advocating violence against one of the two candidates for governor of this state tried to run roughshod over a campaign event. I, I, I think that should be covered. And to be perfectly candid, let's be honest, if a nonviolent organization, you know, if the NAACP came and protested Brian Kemp and said, hey, we're, you know, we're standing against Brian Kemp because, uh, you know, he's a vote suppressor. Or if Black Lives Matter, you know, came and protested Brian Kemp and said, hey, this guy is in favor of Confederate monuments, which was an apartheid state that we stand against, every single news outlet in the country would have followed that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the idea that it gives them too much attention is absolutely wrong. And I think that, if anything, ignoring the kind of danger that an organization like that could bring, not just to the candidate, but to regular citizens in Georgia, is journalistic malpractice. You mentioned that you're the politics editor at The Root, uh, a website that focuses on on Black culture and Black politics. Do you think that the lack of coverage on this issue from mainstream media, do you think that other aspiring Black candidates see that? And, and what do you think that their reaction to that lack of coverage 
is, do you think it makes them less likely to run in the future? Well, you know, it depends. You've got, uh, I believe it's in New Hampshire. Uh, you have the only African-American woman in their state legislature. I think it's New Hampshire just drop out of her race because, I mean, she was a, she was an incumbent, incumbent state legislator. And she dropped out because of the number of threatening phone calls and emails and social media posts that she got from white nationalists in her state. And that woman was an incumbent. So African-Americans who are running for office now or even have been in office will all probably tell you that there's been a rise in, in, in rage and threats and online and in-person hate groups opposing their running and serving as, as citizens of the United States. I will say this, when you are running for office, and if you are African-American, depending on what location you're running in, your ability to speak about these issues candidly may have a lot to do with your constituency. And if you focus too much on people who are hostile or racist or consistently threaten you because of the color of your skin, that may turn off some white voters. You know, there's, there's that famous story, you know, it's, it's, it's both an anecdote and it's written about, it's a famous story about a reporter going to Iowa and asking a, I believe, a Democratic primary voter, uh, who are you going to vote for in the Democratic primary? And the guy said, oh, I'm going to vote for the N-word. You, you have white people who have hostile attitudes and beliefs towards African-Americans, but they will still vote for black people as long as race is not considered a quote-unquote focus, right? They'll vote for white people all the time who focus on race. That's how LePage can get reelected uh, in Maine. That's how Steve King can dog whistle to the cows come home. That's how Donald Trump can attack Muslims and, and Hispanics and everything else like that. But if an African-American points out uh, racial issues, it's, it's, you know, white people get turned off. So to answer your question, black folk are used to this, and they always have to play this dance of highlighting racial harassment and violence uh, and prejudice that affects how they can run. But they cannot focus on it too much because white folks don't want to hear about it. One thing that I, at least I've noticed as sort of unique about Stacey Abrams versus other Democratic candidates that have run statewide in recent years is that she has really focused her campaign's efforts on African-American voters around the state, on getting them registered, on getting them engaged. What do you think of that shift among Democratic politicians to paying more attention to their African, African-American supporters? So there's two things at play. The focus on African-American voters by the Abrams campaign, well, it's not her sole focus. And then two, it's a reaction to the focus on disenfranchising black voters from people like Brian Kemp. And so, you know, if, if black voters were allowed to uh, simply vote in the same numbers with the same ease and the same consistency as white people throughout the state, then the Abrams campaign probably wouldn't have to do what they're doing. But when you look at you know, what we just saw in Randolph County, right, where you have Brian Kemp, a surrogate of Brian Kemp, was running around the state trying to shut down uh, voting precincts, trying to make it more difficult for primarily African-Americans to vote. So the Abrams campaign is, is focusing on black voters in response to Brian Kemp's focus to disenfranchise black voters. And i also say this. When you run for office, it is your job to try to get as many people as possible to not only vote for you, but to also believe that you can win. 
And so the Abrams campaign, by focusing throughout the state, uh, and you look at her primary victory, I mean, it, was, it was amazing. She, she won, was it, I think it was like 124 out of 127 counties or something like that. You know, so that was a lot of white majority counties that she won. You know, the focus is not, hey, black people come vote for me, Stacey Abrams, because I'm black. The focus is on, I'm going to talk to as many different kinds of people as I can. And I'm going to do what I can to make sure that everybody out there can actually vote. And I don't think you can say that about Brian Kemp. I don't think that his campaign is similarly focused on making sure as many people as possible get his message and are able to get to the polls on his behalf. Nothing about the way that he's done his job as Secretary of State indicates someone who wants as many people to participate in the franchise as possible. The issue that was raised at that Augusta event by that white nationalist demonstrator was the issue of Stone Mountain. Um, if if you're living in Atlanta, I'm sure you're familiar that this has been an issue in Georgia politics for quite a while. And Stone Mountain was the site of the birthplace, the rebirth of the KKK. What do you think, particularly white voters and, and white people in Georgia, what do you think they should know or or should understand about this broader debate about Confederate monuments, which is, is tied up in the Stone Mountain issue, but also the renaming of Confederate Avenue in Atlanta and other uh, Confederate monuments around the state and across the South? What do you think that um, voters should know about that issue? Well, I'll, I'll start international and I'll get local. I've been really fortunate uh, to do a couple of lecture tours in Germany about American politics. And it's very interesting. You know, World War II and the rise of Hitler was, you know, about 80 years ago at this point. Uh, I guess 90. I don't know how old Captain America is. And, you know, and the Germans are like, yeah, um, this guy was bad. And his entire rise to power was based on the abuse and the oppression of, of gypsies and Jews and, and people he didn't deem to be Aryan. And they have erased him. They have erased Hitler monuments. They have banished his name from public documents. That's how they've responded to someone who not only had an entire government based on oppression, but who also lost because of what he did. So there's a precedent for how evolved people in societies choose to deal with embarrassing moments, no matter how long they lasted in a nation's history. Then I can bring it back regional, or I even hit Georgia. I am a University of Virginia alumni. I and the rest of the country watched last year as a terrorist, a protest on behalf of keeping Confederate monuments turned into a, te- a terrorist attack that took Heather Heyer's life. When a white nationalist drove his truck into a crowd, injuring 24 people, some of whom I've spoken to, and killed a woman, all because they want to maintain these statues. Then you get to Georgia. And the truth is, these monuments and these statues were not built 200 years ago. They're not historic sites. Most of them were built in the 50s and the 60s as a response to civil rights actions and movements on the part of African-Americans and allies. So to me, the desire and the fight to maintain them, the desire and the fight to hold on to monuments that are representative of the apartheid era in America, that's fundamentally anti-American. And anyone who believes that the removal of a statue 
is an erasure of their culture, obviously doesn't believe that deeply in their culture. And more importantly, the fact that the symbol, the Confederate flags, these statues, they're not just adopted by Southerners. I lived in Ohio. I've traveled around the country. This symbol is adopted by white nationalists and terrorist sympathizers throughout the country. So, you know, I think that most white Americans, even in the South, understand that. They simply don't care. You know, they don't think it's that serious. And a lot of white Americans didn't think it was that serious until they saw what happened in Charlottesville last year. It was very easy prior to Charlottesville to say, oh, come on, it's a statue. I went there in junior high. Why is it a big deal? I mean, I don't own any slaves. But then when you see that there are people in this country willing to kill over maintaining a statue for a guy who owned and fought to keep slaves, that's when I think a lot of people are like, you know what, it ain't worth it. You, you'll still read about this stuff in your history book. So that, that's my feeling on it. I think, I think it's anti-American. Uh, I certainly think that if people want to have statues like that, they're perfectly happy. Uh, they're perfectly free to buy them on their own and put them in their own property. Uh, they're, perfectly ha- they're perfectly free to buy them and donate them to museums. I think that's fine. I think that's cool. But as a taxpayer, I don't want my money going to support people who are being memorialized for supporting an apartheid state. Yeah, I would just add that Stacey Abrams um, hit some of those same points in her response to that question when she right. she cited the Charlottesville, um, the white nationalists driving their car into that crowd in Charlottesville and how, and I don't know that a lot of people in Georgia know this, that state tax dollars do go to support um, Stone Mountain's operation. Um, yeah. Is is there anything else uh, generally on this race that you'd like to hit before we go? Yeah, I, I think it's very important. Uh, you know, I always tell people this. It's important to vote. And I remember in 2016, a friend of mine who was an active young Democrat told me that uh, he saw about two months before the election in 2016 that he wouldn't register to vote. And he's like, this is crazy. He's like, I've voted for every single local state election since I was 18 years old. For some reason, my name is off the polls. And he had to go back and re-register. I don't care if you're a Republican. I do not care if you're a Democrat. The most important expression of our citizenship is the ability to vote. And anyone whose administration or whose future administration would be based in part on denying, suppressing, or limiting people's access to voting is not someone that I can support. And Brian Kemp has a consistent history. He sues voter registration organizations. He's gutted polls. He sent out surrogates to try and shut down voting precincts. You know, what happened in the Georgia 6th last year was insane, where two days after an investigation into the, uh, the polling numbers, you know, suddenly Kennesaw State just magically erases all the data. Look, I'm a professor. You never erase data by accident. It's not like it's a... You know, it's not a, a, an elevator key or something, and you put it next to your VCR and it erased. Like, this is, this is crazy. Um, and he has repeatedly refused time and time again federal money to improve the security and safety of voting machines in the state. Still we're, we're operating on Windows 2000. And he's only tacitly said recently, well, yeah, I guess we should do something about voting machines. I'll address that after I'm governor. So the reason I say all that is because everybody listening to this podcast needs to go out and vote. And you need to go out in huge, huge numbers. And when you do go out and vote, you need to consider, do you want to vote for someone who seems more or less dedicated to, you know, actually doing their job? Or do you want to vote for Brian Kemp, who seems dedicated to 
making as few opportunities possible for people to be able to vote. And I say this specifically about him. I wouldn't say this about Casey Cagle. I wouldn't say this about <laughs> uh, about lots of other Republicans. Um, I don't care what party you're in, but if you're a candidate that does not work your darndest to make sure everybody can vote, that is a candidate that is dangerous to the democracy of the state. So I encourage everybody to register. I encourage everybody to go out and vote. And I encourage everybody to make sure that you vote for somebody who's actually going to care about your vote and protect your vote and not someone who's going to try and steal or suppress it. All right. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you for joining the show. Thank you. Anytime. So we are now joined by Kaylee Ann Teasley, a student at George Washington University and somebody whose blog on Georgia politics I think is really interesting. Kaylee Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This discussion today is is mostly about the Georgia governor's race. And, and one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was was the tone of this race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. Um, so let's dive in right there. And, and Kaylee, and what have you noticed about the tone in this race? So when this race first started, I would say probably with the primaries, both the Republican and the Democratic primaries. For me as a Democrat, what I saw were two women, both, you know, both named Stacey, both had very strong Democratic values. So for me, but being able to vote in that was kind of a difficult decision just because they had a lot of similar stances and a lot of similar values that I hold dear to me. Um, but ultimately, we saw that Stacey Abrams came out on top. But on the Republican side, it was a bit more different um, than than your usual kind of uh, election. You have a whole array of candidates who really kind of stand on different sections of kind of the conservative, more Republican party. So, of course, you have now your Republican candidate, Brian Kemp, who really appeals to that kind of Trump populist agenda um, ideals, um, you know, with the being a politically correct and conservative and, you know, standing up to the establishment, whereas you had someone like Casey Cagle, who is um, sort of more establishment, more, I would say, your kind of go-to Republican. So I think now that we have, now that we've kind of narrowed down um, who the election is going to be against in November, um, I feel like Stacey Abrams has been really consistent with her message, Um, you know, jobs, education, making sure that government is working for everybody and not just, you know, people at the top or for what Republicans may think, people who have a lot of money. Um, But I think with Brian Kemp, he has really shifted his tone with his election. And when I say that, he started off really, I would say, with that strong appeal to the Trump base in Georgia. And I think what a lot of people think is that once you go outside 285 um, in Atlanta, that it's just Trump country. And I think that's really what he tried to grab onto. But as, as the election and campaign has kind of gotten closer to election day. I feel like he's become more subtle. I know he kind of expressed that he didn't want to, he didn't want to become an establishment candidate. But if you look at it now, um, you read the news, you watch the political ads, he's really kind of trying to move away from that kind of radical um, base that he had, Um, even with things like endorsements from the president and the vice president. um, He's really kind of pushing himself away from that and more so trying to give the image of, you know, your traditional conservative values like family, 
God, country. So what do you think about that change in tone? Like, I, I too have felt like Abrams has been a little bit more consistent, or at least to the extent that like the issues that she's highlighted didn't take a dramatic turn from the primary to the general. Whereas you've seen in Brian Kemp's ads, he transitioned from saying that he wanted to round up undocumented immigrants in his own pickup truck to talking about rewarding legal behavior. Um, There's clearly a different sort of frame that he's going for there. Do you take anything away from that shift in terms of, do you think that people buy that either, is he a more moderate candidate now, or is he a conservative who's trying to just appear to be more moderate? So for me, I think, I think it was all sort of a big kind of campaign tactic. I think he really wanted to, you know, grab off that Trump base. But then again, like as, you know, as we get closer to election day, I think he really wants to kind of now appeal to those who voted for Cagle and maybe some of the other candidates, because now that he's representing the Republican Party in the election, he wants to make sure that he can kind of capture all of the votes, um, all of the kind of red voters and Republican voters and some independent voters in Georgia. And so I think my takeaway is that candidates should try and be consistent with their message. But of course, you know, you can't expect a lot from somebody who, you know, at first is like, you know, so conservative and so, you know, just reckless with what he says. And now it's like, no, I I want your vote now. Please trust me with your vote. You know, I'm the best person for you and for Georgia. Do you think that it helps Abrams at all that she's been more consistent? Like, one of the things that I think the, the takeaway from the Trump election in 2016 was that he sort of never changed. And I don't, you know, certainly I don't think Abrams would uh, appreciate a comparison to Trump, but it, but I, at least for my position, it does seem like she hasn't changed her tone or her focus. Do you think that that helps her at all in terms of seeming more authentic or seeming truer to the ideas that she is putting out there? Absolutely, absolutely. I think being consistent kind of shows that you're not willing to change your kind of stances on your values and your positions based on what others you know, may say. Um, and I, you know, what I really like about Stacey Abrams is that she's really focused on voter turnout. And as a young person who is just graduating from high school, and, you know, I just voted in my first election in July, um, it's really important that we make sure that we're reaching voters of all spectrums all across the state, young, old, you know, if you're from rural Georgia, city of Atlanta, you know, Fayetteville, where, where have you, um, I think her consistent message around voting, but just her consistency around all of her kind of stances, um, I think makes her the better candidate just because it shows that she's authentic. She cares about everyone, regardless of their political stance. So you mentioned that this was your first election that you voted in. What is sort of the general takeaway of our, our current politics among people your age, I, we were talking about this in email before we did this interview that um, I kind of feel like you're the, the generation that's kind of maybe about a decade or so behind me is like coming of age into a politics that is very different than the one that I kind of came into it into age in um, particularly as it relates to Trump. But there's also a lot of structural inequality in the economy, a lot of 
um, uncertainty about financial futures and and things like that. Um, what what is sort of your takeaway and the takeaway of your peers of of this age of politics that we're in? So I would agree that the 2016 presidential election really catalyzed a movement amongst um, young people. Um, in 2017, I had the opportunity to go to D.C. for summer program with the ACLU. And what you saw or what I saw really was that there were a lot of kids who were very, felt very um, emotional and kind of um, passionate about the way our political climate is today. Really amongst my friends and amongst my classmates, I, I went to a, a fairly liberal, um, predominantly African-American high school in city of Atlanta. So what you saw was a lot of kids whose political um, affiliations really scaled scaled pretty wide, I would say, on the scale of like liberalism. Um, but then at the same time, you had some kids, a very small group of kids, who were very impassioned about kind of their conservative values. And um, it was always fascinating because in class, we would have these kind of debates. We would argue kind of about like, you know, how the United States is, some would argue that the United States is kind of losing allies you know, with it, with regards to trade and, um, you know, the war on with ISIS and um, kind of the global economy in general, and especially with now with North Korea and Russia. But I think, you know, again, that the 2016 presidential election really brought out a lot of kids who were kind of reserved, didn't really want to say a lot about politics or didn't really have a good understanding of what the kind of political climate was before the 2016 presidential election. But now that you see, um, you know, our president putting out these, you know, heinous tweets and, you know, um, just about terrible, terrible things, you see a lot of students kind of saying, hey, wait, that's not appropriate to say. I should say something about that. And now, I think with this new kind of blue wave movement, you'll see a lot more young voters kind of coming out, um, not really of the shadows, but, you know, now that they're more kind of educated on the topics, they're going to be more inclined to vote um, in these upcoming elections. Another thing I know we wanted to talk about was how both Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams are sort of in line with the general views of their party and how they're deviating from sort of typical Republican or Democratic positions. What do you think about how these candidates are aligning with their parties? Sure. So I'm going to start off with uh, Ms. Abrams. I think Stacey Abrams has really kind of both aligned and deviated from the uh, Democratic Party. I'd say she deviates in the ways that you know, she's not so much focused on being, you know, I would say, you know, in some cases, people would classify the Democratic Party as the party of the, quote, elite, the party of the, quote, you know, we're snowflakes. We feel like we're on this high horse all the time. But I feel like she's really kind of deviated from that kind of stance. And she's, I feel like she's really been on the ground, like really kind of traveling the state, um, reaching out to all walks of life, you know, who want to vote in this election or who don't want to vote. And, you know, her trying to kind of appeal to that voter um, to make sure to, you know, secure their vote. I would also say that she deviates from the party in which she's not the kind of Democrat like, I would say, Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi, but she's more in step with um, senators like Senator Cory Booker and Senator Kamala Harris. 
um, even Representative Ocasio-Cortez of New York. They're more of a, a more left-leaning or more socialist kind of um, take, or not socialist take, but a socialist stance within the Democratic Party. With Brian Kemp, it's a little bit different. Um, Brian Kemp, you know, at first, like I like I've kind of been saying, he was more so trying to appeal to that Trump base, which is this kind of alter. Is I wouldn't say it's alt right, but it is a very different uh, kind of conservatism than what kind of Casey Cagle ran on. Um, you have him, like you said, you know talking about rounding up illegal immigrants in his truck. And even with the famous gun ad with where um, a young man is trying to court his daughter, that is, to me, is a very kind of conservative take. And I think that for, for Brian Kemp, I would say that he is definitely not the kind of conservative that Casey Cagle was. Um, and obviously ways he aligns with the party you know, you have that kind of small government, you know, we want to make sure that Georgia is, you know, has less government and is more kind of having that local communities can kind of have their say about what they want to happen within their community, rather than, quote unquote, big government, you know, kind of stepping in and making decisions for uh, Georgians. So I think those are kind of the ways that um, the two candidates are both align and, um, you know, deviate with their party. So one of the things that a lot of analysts expect about these elections in the fall is that Democrats will be competing in places that they haven't been very competitive in before. Stacey Abrams has released internal polls showing her up by as much as six or seven points over Brian Kemp. Andrew Gillum, who's running for governor in Florida, has had a consistent lead in the polls. And even in Texas, Beto O'Rourke is challenging Texas Senator Ted Cruz in a way um, that I don't think Democrats have competed in Texas in that way in a long time. Is there anything across these races or, or any comparisons between these races that you think is important? I've been kind of focusing more so on the Texas Senate election, um, kind of more so than the Florida governor's election. And I've actually seen a lot of similarities between Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams and Ted Cruz and Brian Kemp. So with Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams, they're actually... I've noticed between the both of them, they're visiting places in the state that kind of feel left behind and focusing on those, you know, more so swing, swing house and Senate districts or those communities that, uh, you know, typically lean one way, but now it's more so a toss up. And, you know, those independent voters who hate Trump, but, you know, don't really like um, the candidates that are, you know, running. So I think for the two of them, they're kind of campaigning, canvassing, in those areas that really kind of need an ear, um, really want to be heard. Um, if you, I mean, if you look at the state of Georgia, you look at our, our House of Representatives in our, in our state Senate, you have districts like House District 80, who went from having a Republican incumbent to a Democratic representative, and then back to a Republican representative. So, you know, focusing on areas like that, and then even like districts like House District 16, you know, kind of West Georgia, like Cedartown area, you have what was first a Democratic incumbent now switching to a Republican representative. I think both Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams are really trying to focus in on those swing districts that have those blue votes. You know, as I like to say, like Stacey says, Georgia's blue and confused. 
there are a lot of places outside of 285 that have Democratic voters, but nobody has really kind of shed light upon them because everybody thinks, you know, outside of Atlanta, it's just straight red. And and one and some could argue that Georgia is fairly red, but I think there are more more people who are arguing that Georgia is more so a toss up, similar to Alabama, and you know having and with the you know Stacey Abrams focusing on that voter turnout, um, I think that's really going to be really important in this election between Ted Cruz and Brian Kemp. You have that kind of appeal to those conservative conservative populist ideas. You know, illegal immigrants are taking your jobs. You know, Obamacare is disastrous. You know, big government is, you know, destroying our towns and whatnot. But now they're becoming more so establishment. And they're actually trying to distance themselves from the president. Like, despite Brian Kemp having an endorsement from President Trump, he's really trying to kind of deviate himself from President Trump, you know, saying he recently in an interview, I think with the Columbus Ledger Inquirer, said that he really wants voters to kind of look at him and his family. You know, he's a man who's gone to his daughter's ballet recitals and rec rec league games. And then again, with Ted Cruz, he's focusing on family and those kind of those um, conservative family values. Um, So that's just some of the similarities I've seen. And so um, as a way to wrap up, what would you, you know, Democrats have the opportunity to make pretty significant gains, um, significant gains in the Georgia legislature, the first Democratic governor in 16 years in the state of Georgia. And nationally, there's a lot of places where Democrats can make gains. Once we get past the 2018 election, and Democrats have more opportunity to govern, possibly in places that they haven't been able to govern in quite a long time. What do you hope comes of all of that? What would you like to come out of um, this blue wave, if it if it does materialize. Well, for starters, I would not want President Trump back in the White House. He has absolutely. I, I it would take me too long to just list all of the things that he has done very poorly um, for our country. Um, but I think for me, as a Democrat and as a woman of color, I think for me, what I want to see is more. Um, people of color running for elected office, especially women. Um, you look at people like, like I said, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, and even Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts with that, you know, upset with the incumbent. I want to see a more diversified kind of political realm. You look at Congress, you know, even our state house. We, I want to see diversity because our country is so diverse with different ideologies, you know, religious beliefs sexual orientation. And there are just a lot of things that kind of make up who we are as a nation. And I don't think our political institutions really reflect that. I'm just going to put it how it is. There are a lot of white men in office. Some are great and some not so much. And what I want to see is sort of a more balanced kind of political institution where you see men, white men, you know, white women, black men, black women, Hispanic women, Hispanic men, Asian men, Asian women kind of coming together to talk about, and not to mention political party as well, kind of coming together to talk about how we can actually kind of heal the divide in our nation that has been really, really big. The divide in our nation is so large, I I can't even begin to tell you. (laughs) Um, But I think for me, it's definitely diversity. Is there anything else you wanted to hit on before we go? I would really encourage people to go out and vote. Like, even if you feel like your vote doesn't matter, 
it really makes a difference. I mean, you look at the 2017 special election in Alabama. People thought Roy Moore would have won that. But if black women had not come out to vote for Doug Jones, Doug Jones would not be sitting in the United States Capitol right now as a Democratic senator of Alabama. And I think really for Georgia, Georgia really has a kind of place where we can really kind of start making a difference and start kind of showing that not all of the South is red. Like we can be blue. Georgia is truly purple. We are not a truly red state, in my opinion. I just feel like we just have to make sure that we're getting out the vote and getting people who have naturally or historically not have voted. We have to make sure that we are securing those votes so Georgia can become blue. Kaylee thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your views. Of course. Thank you for having me once again. All righty. Well, thank you to Kaylee for being on the show. With that, I think we are going to wrap it up for the week. Uh, so, Luke, it was good to talk to you again this week. Always good to be with you, Kyle. And we're going to leave it there, and we will talk to you all again next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.